0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. This week we're discussing Christopher Nolan's new World War II movie, Dunkirk. It's best described as blockbuster art cinema. It follows three viewpoints of the Dunkirk evacuation. So there's the hour-long journey of the two Air Force pilots who are crossing the English Channel, um, a day-long journey of a civilian rescue boat, and the week-long wait for about 400,000 soldiers to be rescued from the beach. It has a really large ensemble cast, but kind of nominally the main character is a British army private who's played by a young actor named Fion Whitehead. I believe he was 18 or 19 when they were filming it, and basically no one had ever heard of him until this film. Then the other cast members are Mark Rylance, who is probably my favourite actor in terms of sheer performance <laughs> I love him he's him um, you know he's a middle-aged British theatre actor and he's playing I say the captain but basically just the owner of like a very small civilian boat and he and his son and another teenage boy take the dangerous journey across the English Channel to go and try and rescue soldiers um, then Tom Hardy plays one of the Air Force Spitfire pilots. Harry Styles, obviously, is in this film. A lot of publicity. He plays a very (laughs) minor but significant role as another British Army private who meets up with Fionn Whitehead's character on the beach. Kenneth Branagh is playing a military commander who's kind of managing the evacuation from the Dunkirk beaches. And also there is Killian Murphy who's playing a soldier with PTSD who gets picked up out of the water by Mark Rylance's boat. And then there are many... Many other British
1: <laughs> men in this film.
0: Basically, yes. it's an entire film about British men.
1: <laughs> this is an accurate fact that is correct about Dunkirk. Many white British men with brown hair. Yes, in this movie, <laughs> there's one man with blonde hair, and
0: that is as far as diversity goes
1: in this drama. Yeah, yeah. So this movie has been getting a ton of rapturous critical attention, and. I went and saw it and had a very similar reaction, I think, to most of the critics who were writing those rapturous reviews, which was basically that this is easily Christopher Nolan's best film, and I think an absolute masterpiece, and probably the second best war film I've ever seen after The Thin Red Line, which we won't get into, but which I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in this kind of thing, or indeed any person who watches films, because it's a Absolute masterpiece. Um, There was a lot of press leading up to this about Christopher Nolan stepping away from sci fi and kind of genre films in that area, although, of course, war movies are a genre in and of themselves. But the interesting thing about this film is that it features an interlocking structure that is quite similar to some of the other stuff he's done before, but without that sci-fi element. And I think that that allowed him to play to his strengths in a big way without having a ton of expository dialogue, which is one of his weaknesses in some of his less great films, such as Inception, which is a movie I enjoy a lot, but which is basically like an hour and a half of people explaining things and then an hour of action, which is not a great ratio, I would say. This movie has like 20 lines of dialogue total yeah there's it's basically a it's a
0: feature length film that is just the action sequence from the end of another film mm-hmm. but it doesn't play like that because it's very much not kind of hollywoodish yeah there's there's absolutely no tropes in this film basically
1: <laughs> no and what is so interesting and engaging about it is that it's an incredibly stressful and suspenseful movie with characters you really, really care about and I think I saw in an interview him talking about how you can really feel empathy for characters in a film just by the sort of physical situations that they're put in which is exactly what happens in this movie and I thought was an interesting comment coming from someone who does not seem to have a massive amount of interest in the characters in his films in the past. At least from our perspective, obviously, I can't know the inside of his mind. But he seemed more interested in the sort of technical side of things. And that seemed like a very insightful point to me. And it's exactly what happens in this movie. You don't know anything about the backgrounds of almost any of these characters. You're really presented with what is happening to them in this moment in a very, very physical way. Particularly Fionn Whitehead's character, who's supposedly named Tommy, according to the critics. But I don't think you ever hear that spoken they probably just needed a name for him in the script. Um, He says almost nothing the entire film. I thought his performance was superb, but the stress you feel for him is completely based on just watching him having to endure this situation. Yeah, and I think we we are going to talk a lot about
0: Christopher Nolan's work as a technical director, probably going to be using the word technical too much. I don't really mean that in the sense that it's cold. Like He does He's really amazing at directing actors, which is kind of an obvious thing to say, but... um... In our other podcasts about uh, Christopher Nolan movies, I think we are quite critical of the way that he writes characters, and often there's a bit, there is a lot of kind of bad exposition and poor dialogue and that sort of thing. But he is consistently really amazing and getting good performances out of his actors, um, and that's kind of what this boils down to. And he's working with like people who've never been in a movie before and people who are massive movie stars, and everyone gives these amazing, really pure performances that aren't kind of overly stylized. And are completely about like the immediate experience of being in the moment of something really horrifying and stressful. Um, So it's like he's taken away a lot of the things that he's bad at and replaced them with only the things that he's good at, which I think is something um, that a lot of people have picked up on this film. Like we were kind of joking right after we both saw the film, we had the same reaction, which is that he fixed his main problems from other films, which are dialogue, exposition, and really poorly written female characters by removing all of those things. There's basically (laughs) no dialogue, there's no exposition because it's not necessary, and there are absolutely no female characters. You know, There's a brief moment where a nurse says a line kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, But he has solved that, and um, the film is much the better for it.
1: Yep. And that is sometimes what it takes, sadly, for male directors is to just not have women. Which is not a long term solution to the problem, but for this. This one is a film where I instance, can accept it.
0: In his other yeah. films, I accept it much less.
1: <laughs> well, right, because in this context, that's actually a realistic depiction of what was going on, which in most cases, if someone said that, I would roll my eyes and be like, please. But literally, like half of this film takes place with these boys running around on Dunkirk Beach trying to figure out how they're going to get across the English Channel and like historically speaking, I recognize that there were not a lot of women in that situation. Yeah. Right? I mean there so were like, definitely women fine. on
0: the civilian boats, and he does show some right in the background, yeah. so he could have chosen to focus on them. But instead he gave us Mark Rylance, and it's very hard for me to argue with the presence of Mark Rylance, even yeah. from an ethical perspective.
1: <laughs> it's fine. But also by having Mark Rylance and his son And then this other boy from the town who sort of works on his boat and jumps in as they're leaving because he wants to be involved, even though he's not old enough to fight. They're presenting this kind of other component of masculinity that isn't of the right age to be fighting in the war. Someone was saying this on Twitter in a review, I think, and... I thought that it was really, that was a really insightful point, right? Because these are people who are either too young or too old to actually be in the army or the military, I should say, but wind up going anyway. And of course, as you say, there were women too, so he could have done that. But I felt like showing all these different men at these different stages participating was really interesting because of what the movie is kind of saying and not saying about, masculinity like this is a war movie that has none of the kind of like rah rah I mean it doesn't have fighting it's literally a movie where almost
0: every character is a soldier but they're not fighting because they're just they're basically escaping in the aftermath of a colossal defeat you know the kind of the premise if you're not familiar with the Dunkirk history basically there was 400,000 soldiers mostly British but there were some French and Canadian um, soldiers there as well on this beach essentially waiting to be massacred by the German armies and At first, they think we're only going to be able to evacuate about 10% of them. And by the end, they've managed to evacuate like over 300,000 through sending over kind of Navy ships from Britain and also this fleet of civilian boats. Um, But it is really interesting to watch a war movie where it's from the perspective of the military. But there is no kind of, well, there's basically no fight scenes. It's just them being mown down by pilots who are bombing the uh, the beaches and that sort of thing. And you also don't really see the enemy. I think the only people you really see engaging in combat are the two Spitfire pilots, um the main one of which is played by Tom Hardy. And he is he is very much kind of in keeping with the idea of like a kind of a heroic World War II character, but he's also playing quite an atypical character for Tom Hardy because he's very self-contained and sensible and quiet. And basically, his main tension is keeping, um, track of how much fuel there is in his aircraft, because his fuel gauge is broken. And I felt that was a very Christopher Nolan-ish kind of detail to work into yes. the movie, which I'm sure he must have got from an interview, because he interviewed like dozens and dozens of Dunkirk survivors for this movie. So I'm sure he got that from somewhere.
1: <laughs> but it, but it is very Nolan-ish. Yeah, I like that detail a lot. And as you say, that character is reminiscent of other depictions of RAF pilots from Media about the war and he acts in a heroic way at certain points during the film, but he does not come across in a way that is trumpeted as particularly massively heroic. Tom Hardy's performance is very low key, which is was a massive thrill to me to see him do something where he's just playing a normal man. I mean, man. have you
0: not seen the movie where he drives around in a car doing a Welsh accent? I have seen that. I saw and enjoyed that, even though he was doing, as we all know, a Tom Hardy accent. In this one, he was not doing a Tom Hardy accent, which was right. refreshing. But
1: see, that film was like three or four years ago. So it's been some time since he played a normal man. But also the way the, he, the film presents him, even though the stuff in the air with the planes is shot in just an unbelievably thrilling and beautiful way, it's not shot in a way or, or scored for most of the film in a way that is tr- trying to make you think like, oh my god, our, our amazing pilots who were so heroic during the no. war. And also it's just kind of the like, pilots that's are what very they were detached doing. Because they're yes. even though they
0: are obviously getting shot at, they are in the least amount of peril because everyone else is in that kind of immediate physical fear. Like it's a I saw some review that said it basically ticked off every phobia that you can possibly have. Because there's people like drowning, being like trapped in small spaces. There's like fire, a fear of the dark. It has all of that stuff. And there's none of that kind of visceral terror. And I saw somewhere a list of movies that Christopher Nolan listed as his main influences. And one of them was Alien, which I found really interesting. They obviously don't show the monster, which would obviously be the Nazi army. But like, it does still have that tension, rising horror of invisible enemy.
1: Yes. And I think the fact that you basically never see the Germans is really interesting and effective because I think it was Manola Dargis said this in the times that a it's obviously everyone watching this film is going to know enough minimal history about world war two to know who the enemy is. So he doesn't need to explain it, right? It's not necessary, but also by not having them there and not having this be a fight, which, of course, the historical event was not, all the opportunities for showing this kind of male bravado or machismo are not there. Like, they're literally just trying to not die, which in many cases is out of their hands because they're sitting ducks on a beach being bombed, right? And so what I found particularly sort of affecting about it in terms of what it's saying about war is that they're really really powerless and so the enemy really is just this like faceless being who they can't do anything about and the theoretically like heroic act of like killing a nazi is so irrelevant in this context. Yeah, like, I mean, the just whole film not is people
0: trying to escape. And the main character, <laughs> allegedly Tommy, but the, the main character, you know, he's doing stuff that under the kind of traditional World War II movie standards would be perceived as unheroic and cowardly, even though we don't, I mean, one doesn't think of it as cowardly because he's just trying to survive. But um, they do kind of tackle that later on because Harry Styles' character is someone who does do really selfish stuff to try and survive. And he feels guilt about it, whereas Field Whitehead's character really doesn't. But one thing I found interesting about um, the way they did or didn't show the Nazis was that the cameras really always from the point of view of not like a specific character, but just like as if you are one of the men on the beach. So there aren't really any shots where they're kind of zooming around in a helicopter or whatever. Like I did see an interview with Nolan where he said they'd stuck cameras onto the actual Spitfires. Um, So all the yeah. scenes where they, I mean, you can tell when you're watching the movie if you know about it, but like. All the scenes where they have these aerial battles, it's very clear that you're literally just in one of these planes. And then yeah. when you're down on the beach, you know, you're in the water with the men, you're on the beach with the men. There's no point where it's kind of an unrealistic shot to be from. And that really adds to everything. It's so immersive. That's why it's kind of bears re watching. Like, I'm probably going to see this film again just so I can pick up on kind of the way that he uses the camera to put you right in the middle of the action.
1: Well, and that ties in with the three-part structure as well. So if people haven't seen this film, you were saying that it's in the intro at the beginning that it follows these three plots, basically, and that they cover different spans of time but are spread throughout the movie, not necessarily in an equal way. Like, you don't see as much of Tom Hardy as you see if you on Whitehead, but they're spread throughout the movie from the beginning, and the one is a week long, one is a day long, and one is an hour long. And so, I was reading an article about this. I can't remember um, who it was by, but I have the link, so we'll put it in the the description. Um, that basically Tom Hardy from his plane sees most of the action of the film, or the climactic action of the film, right at the beginning of the movie, which isn't really a spoiler because you don't know what it means yet and then the people on the ground are all experiencing it and the way the things link together i don't think it was immediately apparent to me what the sort of thematic significance of that was i just knew watching it that it really worked because i was so stressed out i mean normally when i'm watching a film i'm really analyzing it in my head like this just the way i process things and this one I was doing that a little bit but mostly was just like I am very stressed out by all the gunfire and the bombs (laughs) like there's a lot going on here in a great way but that the fact that you're seeing all these things from these different perspectives and that they link together isn't just a kind of clever trick it's that all of these people are participating in these different ways and they can't quite get to each other Which, of course, is what they're trying to do, is to get these people across the channel. And that that sense of alienation is sort of pervades the whole film, I think. Which gets back to the fact they don't talk very much. Like, the main guy, you really feel with him, but he just is sort of stranded in this situation where his humanity has really been degraded. And so... The film isn't about attempts at connection in any particularly psychological way, but you do see this, get this sense of like distance between people and sort of the different structures of the military and the civilians, which I found really, really interesting. And I feel like if I go and see it a second time thinking about that, that a lot more will sort of appear. Um, and it's definitely a film, I think, that when you can watch it and just viscerally experience it in a really kind of incredible way, but that there's clearly so much going on underneath that it will reward multiple viewings, which I always think is a sign that the, a movie is really, really good.
0: Yeah, no, about the dialogue thing, that kind of just, as you were saying that, that made me realize that I think the people in the civilian boat, Mark Rylance and his uh, the two boys, they do have more dialogue and it's because their characters have the energy that they can afford to having conversations and being empathic towards each other and towards the soldiers they they rescue, whereas the main character is just consistently exhausted and spends the entire movie trying to get into boats and then being bombed out of boats and falling back in the water. So they don't have the energy to talk and that's really realistic.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either, but that is definitely, I mean, I realized that obviously, like, Mark Rylance talks more, but I hadn't really thought about that and that's completely true and really does color the way you think about those characters and the way you think about the movie as a whole. Um, One of the things that happens is that Mark Rylance and his son pick up Killian Murphy out of the water and he's suffering from shell shock. And uh, the, that's where the real link between the civilians and the military comes in. And it is so stark, the just complete disparity of their experiences, even as they're on their way to Dunkirk to become involved in this, clearly with some awareness of what they're getting into, but obviously not the awareness that he has having experienced it himself. Although with Mark Violence's
0: character, he's presumably in his 50s, so he's probably a veteran yes. of World War One.
1: Yes, which you definitely wind up like thinking about a lot as you're watching. But like he has two young boys on the ship who are r- raring to go, and obviously don't know what they're getting into. But the way they're presented isn't as like young idiots. I mean, kind of like young idiots, but not foolhardy idiots who are just like, "I want to go fight." Like they're very earnest, but simultaneously, obviously c- cannot possibly fully grasp what is going on which I also that was a very I found very moving I found both those characters very moving which surprised me a little bit because the kid playing Mark Rylance's son is like the most bland looking attractive blonde <laughs> he does look like a boy. Calvin Bo-
0: Klein model like a, a right a teen Calvin Klein model
1: <laughs> I mean and I don't even know how good of an actor he was I mean he was perfectly fine but just something about the way that they were presented I found very affecting like they just clearly really wanted to help. Well I think Nolan when he was
0: making this film he's clearly obviously really into the Dunkirk story but he was very much focusing on the kind of community patriotism mythos that's really very much part of the British kind of idea of the second world war so I mean, if you're in the US, I'm not really sure if this is the same in the US, if it's more about fighting, but in the UK, I would say the bulk of my World War II knowledge, like just from stuff that I was taught at school and stories I heard was all about what the civilians were doing. So it's all about, you know, make, do and mend and people pulling together and kind of community spirit and that sort of thing. And even though I'm not especially familiar with the Dunkirk story, that's basically what this is about, because it's not about any kind of defeat of the enemy. It's all about people kind of pulling together and... Um, doing the kind of more everyday heroism kind of stuff so it makes sense that the two boys have been growing up on basically world war ii propaganda in their media throughout the past couple of years of their lives and that propaganda has all been about doing your part from the home front while the soldiers are overseas so instead of them being like oh we're gonna kill some nazis like their automatic response is that they want to get in a fishing boat and like be part of the rescue effort
1: yeah when you learn about world war ii and the i mean at least in my experience as a sort of kid in the U.S. public school system um, you definitely learn about sort of home front propaganda stuff. There was rationing and people would sort of donate their loose metal objects <laughs> to be turned into planes and whatever um, but because we weren't an active war zone except for Pearl Harbor um, it, it's not the same thing and I think you learn much more about the, the fronts the European front in particular because it's just what everyone's obsessed with even though it wasn't, you know, more significant than the Pacific front. Nobody of course learns about Dunkirk in America. It's not a thing that is ever discussed because we weren't involved. Therefore, it doesn't exist. So, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> um, I think probably the first time I'd ever heard of it was atonement, which I feel like we can we can return to later. Yeah, we have but, several
0: recommendations of previous podcasts that we're going to recommend at the end because we've yeah. done several relevant ones.
1: <laughs> oh man. Um but one of the things I found the most interesting about this movie and that I was even thinking about while watching it through the the haze of you know shells coming down on the the poor young brown-haired boys was the way the movie does deal with sentiment and this idea of, you know, the people coming together and you know, rah-rah, England, whatever Because The First two-thirds of the film Maybe there's none of that at all I mean, like, zero And then in the end When they kind of start The little boats start to arrive There's, like, one or two shots Or you you see the this makeshift fleet coming in And there's a sort of swell of Hans Zimmer music That sounds very inspiring and then literally they cut to a different section of the movie after maybe 30 seconds, and it's over. And you're back to whatever terrible thing is going on. And then in the last 10 or 15 minutes, maybe, when the whole thing is winding down, you know, without giving details, he sort of wobbles back and forth between giving you something that is quite sentimental or inspirational and then really undercutting it with a more realistic depiction of whatever might have been happening or just something that's a bit grimmer. And I found that really interesting because I found the end of the film very ambivalent, but I could also see that someone might watch it with a different mindset going in and come out feeling like, yeah, Britain, so great. I mean, not necessarily an American, but like the the home audience, if you will. And it reminded me a little bit of Zero Dark Thirty in that way, actually, because I remember seeing that film with a friend of mine. Um, and this was, of course, before there was any, you know, controversy about it. We saw it very early. And we were both just so nauseated by everything that was depicted in the film. And I still think that movie is very anti-torture. And very ambivalent about what's going on in the whole thing, and then of course there's been a lot of discourse about it since that is not relevant here, but I think a lot of the response to that movie was very much people with opinions going in, that then they felt that then they validated with the film just because they had an opinion already, and this movie is obviously about something really different, but I get the sense that different people would react to it really differently, which I just find interesting because I thought that there was a lot of kind of really complicated stuff going on under the surface and that it was smart of him not to make any of it too explicit. But um, I think he was t- kind of trying to have, eat his, like, have his cake and eat it too with the
0: end. It's like the first hint that it's even anything approaching kind of sentimentality because that's the point where they really do start to there was like a bit of actual kind of classic world war ii iconography towards the end and i was almost like i feel like this is now too sentimental even though it's barely sentimental by normal standards um but also i feel like you kind of have to have that because like people need to have the catharsis after the horror of the whole film yeah and like the one part of the movie that i felt was more like just being in a normal world war ii movie it was literally kenneth branagh and i was really amused because yes. i saw some review that was basically <laughs> talking about how they were clearly had to try and rein him in from giving this saint christmas day speech at every moment and that is literally what he's doing he's like he's just intrinsically hammy and i say this with this with affection because i actually really i like him and i've like i've liked some of his directing work and i like a lot of his acting work but like he definitely seems like he is starring in a british period drama Whereas everyone else is starring in Christopher Nolan's art war movie. <laughs> right. Uh, it's just, every it's time a bit he dark. came on
1: screen. <laughs> yeah. Every time he came on screen and said anything, I was like, where have you come from? What are you doing here? What's going on? This would be like the one thing I would have changed about this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's entertaining. It does not. It did not massively impact my experience, but it did throw into relief. What the rest of the film was doing and how different it was from other movies, most other movies of this type, because it's so not right for what's going on. And he's not in it that much. Again, this really, it's not like it ruins the film by any stretch of the imagination or even the stuff he's in, really. But he is doing something different.
0: I kind of suspect that that's not an intentional choice. Chris Merrill is not, he doesn't come across as a controlling director, but he definitely comes across as someone who's very in control of his vision, because I think he's succeeded 100% with what he wanted to do with this film. And I agree with like 95% of it, the 5% being the fact that he's decided that this film should definitely be about like white men. Okay, you definitely want to focus on British people, even though there were A lot of non-British people there but also there were British people there who were not white and I think that's kind of the one criticism that if I see that kind of on social media I'll be like nodding along um But like in every other part of his vision I'm like I understand where you're coming from and I agree with that kind of thing and then Kenneth Branagh is just sort of like edging off the side of that plan because he's just ever (laughs) so slightly hammy
1: yeah I mean it's what he does as you say It's his thing. Yeah. It's
0: kind of like when you see Eddie Azard in like a really serious drama and you're like, I know that you can act and stuff, but like, it just seems that there's something off.
1: (laughs) Yes. I was entertained by the fact that in addition to being almost universally white, all of the soldiers were like slender, white, brown haired men who looked very similar I was like, wow. just... you all have you are the really same just... really beautiful haircut? <laughs> yes. I was just, it amused me a lot.
0: I'm absolutely sure there... that if I didn't have Harry Styles' face tattooed onto my eyeballs, I would not be able to tell the difference between the main three brunette, miserable, sad, young privates, because they do look really similar. But because one of them's Harry Styles, it's like, that's definitely Harry Styles. And credit to his performance. I was definitely far more distracted by Kenneth Branagh, because Harry Styles' performance is actually really solid, subtle performance, He went through a fuck ton of auditions to do this movie and clearly passed muster with Nolan, although I do not believe for a moment that Nolan didn't know how famous he was. Like, I'm sorry, you have kids, you know how famous Harry Styles is. It's just, yeah, it's bullshit. It's not remotely correct. I will accept Um, that maybe he was not, he did not realize how many fangirls would be trying to break onto the set or like how many people's daughters would be trying to get autographs.
1: But he definitely knew that
0: Harry Styles was famous because Christopher yes. Nolan isn't a
1: recluse. <laughs> right. Even though he doesn't have email, apparently, or a phone. But he's not an idiot. So, yeah, I found Harry Styles' presence to be very distracting, I have to say. It was fine. I got used to it. It was more when he had dialogue. When he was just there, it was fine. Whenever he said anything, I didn't think he was bad at all. It was more just that... I think I tweeted something to this effect, but like my brain just couldn't stop like registering that it was Harry Styles talking.
0: Well, once he's done a couple more critically acclaimed films, you wouldn't have that problem anymore because exactly. you fully accepted both his star power and his talents as an actor.
1: Oh, Unless it turns God. out he's
0: one of these people who when he works as a shit director, he's also shit. But either way, he's going to have a successful career, so it's fine for him. Yeah, he
1: is, <laughs> he is all set in his life. Oh, I would he's say. great. And they did let him keep his accent. Yes. I did think a couple of the line readings, especially at the beginning, were not the best, but it was really, it was okay. He was, I enjoyed that they were kind of having him play the, the sh- little, the little shit. Yes. One. I was like, he's it's the like, unlikable
0: one. Interesting. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Cause you don't see it coming right away. And then that becomes apparent. And I was like, oh yeah, I like this. I like this more now. Like, Great, at contrast to Peon Whitehead, who is a, a pure boy who you don't know anything about yeah. doesn't he's matter. He's a
0: pure present tense, relatable empty shell of a man.
1: Yeah. I spent so much time watching this movie just being like, please don't die. Please don't die. It might be a better movie if you die. I can't decide, but I don't want you to die, which is like I felt like that was a testament to the I feel like film's that's the peak success. Morgan Davies response to war films. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Indeed. I was very satisfied with the ending. Whatever may have occurred, I will I will say. Um, which we should just talk about at the end in a little more explicit detail, but we have other things to discuss yeah. first.
0: I think we need we should talk about some technology now.
1: Yes, that's what I was just
0: going to suggest. What technology would you like to begin with? Well, Morgan, why don't you teach the audience about what 70mm is? I would be so happy to do that. (laughs) I wish we had. I saw this film in regular non-film IMAX.
1: Which I did did not see it in IMAX. So between the two of us, we've had the full experience. But tragically, neither one of us has fully ascended and (laughs) done the whole thing. Although I think I'm going to rectify this in a week or so. But, in any event, I wish I had a sort of visual component to this podcast because I actually received at the Irish Film Institute, where I saw this movie, great movie theater, highly recommended, a piece of 70 millimeter film that says at the bottom, I saw this in 70 millimeter and Dunkirk at the top. And I was like, wow, they are going for this. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was amazing. I was so into it. The fetishization of, of film in general, and 70mm in particular, is I it's full steam ahead and I am on board. So basically, most films that you watch are now shot on digital, which most people who follow any of this stuff at all will know. This is obviously easier in many respects, the main one being that a film print can only last for a certain number of minutes it's like 12 or something depending on what you're doing and so a lot of the advantage of digital people said at the beginning was oh you can shoot just like endless takes which if depending on what you're doing can be really useful um but there has definitely the, res, the result of digital photography was basically the rapid collapse of film photography in the movie industry so much so that most plants that make and process film film have shut down although not all of them. Christopher Nolan has been one of the loudest if not the loudest person in Hollywood advocating for the use of traditional celluloid and the preservation of films on celluloid and he shoots all of his movies on film. He's really really obsessed with it. I am uh, share his views on this although I think that digital is totally appropriate in other you know situations so normally if you see a film on film which again usually you don't anymore even if a film has been shot on film you would see it projected in your regular movie theater on a digital projector it's made on 35 millimeter film which is 35 millimeters wide as you would expect 70 millimeter film is 70 millimeters wide which is obviously bigger back in the day Films were shot on 70 millimeter more often, but it was never the norm. So, Lawrence of Arabia and 2001, and other films from that general era, sort of mid 20th century, were films with wide sweeping vistas. You get an incredibly high level of resolution from a larger print as opposed to 35 millimeter, which is smaller. But this fell out of fashion and particularly fell out of fashion once digital came to prominence. Recently, Paul Thomas Anderson shot The Master in 2012, I believe, on 70mm, and it was a huge deal. That's the only other film I've ever seen on a 70mm print, and it was absolutely beautiful. And then Quentin Tarantino shot The Hateful Eight on 70mm, and that received the widest release of of a of, of film on 70mm prints in cinemas. In a long time. Harvey Weinstein like bought up all the projectors and whatever. This film was also shot on 70mm and is receiving a massive release in the United States for a film shot on that medium. I think there are like 125 projectors that are actually showing prints of this in big cinemas. Some in IMAX, some not in IMAX. So you would be going and actually seeing a film projected on film as opposed to the digital projection. This is all very wonky and I've been talking for a long time, but it, it does make a difference in your viewing experience. It doesn't mean that if you go and you're not seeing the film that you're not like seeing the movie. But I saw this on 70 millimeter at not an IMAX screen, but quite a big screen with really good audio as well. And it is just, it's so beautiful. It was so gorgeous. Like I cannot describe to you. Every shot of the sea and the sky in particular, with the planes was just like staggering the level of detail and the close ups of the faces, which was what really made the master special because that movie is not a film with a lot of sweeping vistas. It's really about faces. I just found it so striking, but kind of the most interesting element is the press it's been getting. Frankly, like it, this is what has been talked about, about this movie aside from the fact that the movie is good is that like everyone is talking about the fact that this movie was shot on film. And I don't know if that will lead to anything in the industry. Nolan claims that he makes his films for like l- less money than people who do all kinds of fancy digital stuff, which I believe because he seems like someone who would not make up numbers. He seems very tight A about that. Um, but given how much money this movie seems like it's going to make, it will be interesting to see what kind of happens with that. Um, Even if you don't see it on the print, the finished product in any medium is going to be pretty beautiful. Um, I mean, I
0: am probably going to see the 70mm version, which is making its way to Glasgow in like a month. Uh, <laughs> because I'm curious, because I'm like, am I actually going to see a difference? Or am I going to be the person who just has to be a film critic and is like... I I assume you experienced something, but I'm just going to not have the placebo effect. (laughs) So hopefully. But um, I'm not going to lie to myself if it turns out that I'm just like experiencing
1: the same thing with my little eyes. (laughs) Yes. I mean, regardless of the film stock, the cinematography is just unbelievable. Yes. Mr. Van Hoytema. Oh, what did he do Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? Am I going insane? I think he did. I think that's right. I'm looking him up right now. He did. I know he did Interstellar. Yeah. Um yes, he did Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, my man. He is so good. On Spectre. Just... <laughs> and and her and the fighter. This is a bizarre resume. And let the right one in, of course, because he works with them um, or worked with Thomas Alfredson. It doesn't look like he did his upcoming one. Yeah. Everything he shoots is just unbelievable god i love tinker taylor what a film perfect movie someday we will podcast about that it's actually kind of unbelievable we haven't i know (laughs) because i've seen it like 10 times and i'm not exaggerating i may be understating that figure yeah talk about sad british men that's just you know it's a perfect film tinker taylor so just by is a perfect film it's yeah, I mean there's there's literally nothing I would would change about it. But back to Dunkirk. Yes. <laughs> the part of I think the effect of the film stuff in terms of Nolan's own approach is that he's obviously really, really into the actual physical thing, and that in this movie, as far as I'm aware, there's not a ton of actual like digital effects going on. Of course there are some um as there always are i mean they brought in a fleet of actual dunkirk
0: boats so some of the boats that are in this movie are literally boats that rescued people at dunkirk the rest are historical replicas and they were flying around either literal spitfires or i think they had like something that was painted up to look uh like a german air force plane to be one of the german air force planes so there was a lot of obsessive kind of attention to physical detail and practical effects. This is one of the many ways in which I find Christopher Nolan quite relaxing, or I assume that he's quite relaxing to work with, because there's so many stories about really ambitious directors and kind of visionary directors where they sound like they're probably kind of a nightmare to work with. And you and I often kind of joke that Christopher Nolan is a boring dad. Um, And I actually have like a lot of criticisms (laughs) about some of his other work, primarily that he is absolutely horrible at representing human women on screen. Uh, (laughs) But he does like actors genuinely seem to love working with him. And I think he gives really clear instructions. He always has a very clear vision. Clearly, his sets are always phenomenally well organized. And in the case of this film, um, one of the quite highly publicized aspects of it is the backstory. Um, And like Inception, this is a movie that he's been wanting to make for basically decades. Um, Inception is something that he thought up when he was in college. Um, And this movie, he decided he wanted to make a Dunkirk film when he and his wife um, kind of did a channel crossing and he started thinking about, you know, how difficult and isolating it is just to make a normal channel crossing under ordinary circumstances and how much worse it would be um, to uh, kind of be going across Dunkirk, which I imagine is the reaction that a lot of people have. Um, if they when they're crossing the channel because it's like this really famous historical moment but the part that's interesting is that he spent years and years thinking of what he's going to do for this movie but he made sure to time it at a point in his career both when he had kind of the technical expertise and all the collaborators who could help him do it but also he had enough trust with the studio that he could basically do whatever he wants which is kind of the position he's in right now he's kind of like Christopher Nolan is the most Sought after director, except not in the literal sense, because he and Warner Brothers are basically married to each other. He has made, I think, every film with Warner Brothers, like maybe past Memento or something. And after making the Dark Knight trilogy, obviously he has made them more money than God, which is why he is hilariously credited as an executive producer on like Man of Steel, which is like, uh, sure, okay, I'm sure you must have done something (laughs) for this movie, but I don't know what it was. (laughs) I would love to be on the fly on the wall of the meetings with him, his wife. Um, Emma Thomas, what's her name? I believe that's right. Yeah, his yeah. wife Emma Thomas and uh and Zack Snyder, because oh boy, I don't know how that would go. Um but yeah, basically he's at the position where he can go to Warner Brothers and be like, I have this really specific and ambitious plan for a nearly dialogue-free war movie which has a really experimental structure, and because it's about this really famous historical moment and because he can get really famous actors to be in it it is a saleable Hollywood product but it's also far stranger in a non-showy way than basically any film of this budget you're going to see because virtually every other film of this budget is going to be a superhero movie or something of that ilk and this is like a very grimy film full of characters whose names you don't know and it's told over these three interlocking time periods and it's all about kind of the experience <laughs> so well he's in a interesting, unique position
1: yeah he that is certainly true but the interesting thing is that this movie is obvious it's clearly making a ton of money everywhere obviously in the uk it is going to make just gazillions of dollars but in america no one has ever heard of this event like literally nobody's ever heard of dunker so they've heard of world war ii And people tend to like war movies. And they've seen a lot of the actors and stuff. Although, not the main actor, who is the one on the poster. Like, the poster is just Fiona Whitehead's face. So, they basically... And, apparently, the studio wanted to release the movie, I assume, in the fall. But, in any event, not in July. And Christopher Nolan was like, I am releasing this movie in July. And they said, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Like... (laughs) and <laughs> it's making bank so clearly that strategy worked and he was worked.
0: absolutely adamant about only casting british actors definitely should have cast some non-white british actors because it's just bad it's just bad but he was like very adamant about not casting american movie stars which is definitely an issue especially in historical dramas where it's like you have someone who's pretending to be British or someone British pretending to be American and also people who are like 30 pretending to be new recruits in the military. And in this, he was like, I am going to cast an 18-year-old English boy to play a soldier at Dunkirk. And he did. And it was much better for that.
1: Yes. I mean, the most hilarious example of that in a way that actually worked is Band of Brothers because it was made in the UK. Mostly, and then I—I I guess some of it in in Europe too, but like half of the people in that are, are British, and it's all about like the greatness of America, <laughs> and they're all great, so it doesn't matter. But it's, like it's always Jamie Lewis, funny. literally Henry the Eighth, <laughs> right? Who is playing the embodiment of like the American spirit in Band of Brothers? I mean, he's playing like a renowned American war hero who is like a saint. I mean, it's just. It's hysterical, um, and again, in that case, it worked because he can—he's got the the accent down, and I mean, it's 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 all good. But it is—it's just always a bit funny to me when that happens. And in this case, clearly, he was not—that was not going to be happening. Which I think is—I—I I respect that. You know, caveat, caveat aside, as you just said. Yeah. So we get Kelly and Murphy again
0: for the millionth time in the Christopher yes. Nolan over and um once again he's crying and he's very good at it which i i was quite amused because in one of the Christopher Nolan many interviews i saw he was kind of talking about how like yeah he he really always wants to get get like a fresh performance from people so he either hires someone who's completely new or he makes sure that there's a fresh performance from one of the actors he works with a lot and i'm like i adore Cillian Murphy and think that he's a world class talent however I feel like there's definitely a trend in the roles that he gets with, uh, with Christopher Nolan. And also, I think everyone has noticed that Nolan really just loves to cover up either Tom Hardy's beautiful face or Cillian Murphy's beautiful face or both in the majority of the roles. Because this is the millionth film that Tom Hardy has done where nearly his entire face is obscured. And it was very surprising to see Cillian Murphy's face in this one.
1: To be, in, in Nolan's defense, I think this is actually quite a different role than anything Cillian Murphy has done with him. So, you know, it's it's okay.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, it's a, and I I love this role. You know, yes, extremely troubled, weepy and slightly morally ambiguous is absolutely the Killing Murphy zone.
1: <laughs> yes, but with Nolan, he's played a spoiled rich kid and a psychopath. So, you know, it's new territory. Um, and also he clearly i we should add the the addendum that he ev- he cast irish actors too cuz killian murphy is in it and the the boy in the boat the mark rylance's boat is irish as yeah. well
0: pretending to be english
1: did. yeah so slight diversity amongst <laughs> the white people of the british isles getting a little bit in there <laughs> i was going to compare this to atonement earlier which I feel like we should do, albeit briefly, just because it is so... I thought about this midway through the movie and then just thought, oh my god, poor Joe Wright. Man, if people have seen Atonement, there's a long sequence sort of two-thirds of the way through that movie maybe that takes place at Dunkirk, and I truly feel that it has been destroyed. By this movie. But as a whole, like, like people people
0: are really obsessed with the Dunkirk sequence uh, from Atonement, right? We, I mean, we did a podcast about this, so you can find yeah. our Atonement podcast later, but because I was watching that, you know, five or whatever years after it came out, I wasn't really so aware of the conversation about how exciting that sequence was. So as a whole, Atonement is like nothing like this. So if you're really obsessed with the technicalities of the single shot drama of the beach scene, then yeah... Maybe that has been overshadowed by Dunkirk, the movie, but otherwise, oh, there's really no overlap, I mean, so it's fine. I don't think that
1: film is like destroyed, obviously. But that was definitely like the crowning moment of that movie. And I just, and like the only cinematic representation in a major way of Dunkirk. And yeah, I was I mean like, no, stylistically they are no. also
0: really different because yes. the one in atonement is intentionally really theatrical and they have all these kind of shapely bursts of smoke and that sort of thing and also you're following like it is intentionally a really sen- sentimental film oh, so
1: yeah I'm not especially concerned <laughs> I just I mean I'm not like concerned in the sense that I'm like worried about Joe Wright director <laughs> of Pan it was just one of those things where I thought wow this has rendered this at least to me like irrelevant. Not the whole movie, but that specifically. And I it will be interesting to rewatch some of the other World War Two stuff that is more sentimental. And that's okay. I mean, films do try to do different things. Like the the stuff in Atonement is attempting a completely different thing than this movie. But something like Saving Private Ryan, which has an absolutely different objective and is a movie I don't like anyway, and so people who love that film are going to keep loving that film, and that's obviously fine, but like I have just never liked it. I think it's way too sentimental and just schlocky. Um, I think I just think it will be interesting to sort of look at that in the context of this film, right? Not that it's going to have any impact on that movie's legacy, but in that movie, you do see the Nazis a lot. And when the American soldiers get shot in that film, they bleed a lot. And when the Nazis get shot, they don't bleed, which is something that has made me insane forever because it's so obviously just ridiculous. I mean, it's just, a, it's just, it's so obvious, right? Like, I mean, God. And in this, I feel like not even showing them is like just a smarter thing to do. And again, it's, it's because the movie's trying to do something different. But I so appreciated the almost total lack of sentimentality. And that a studio was willing to make like a massive $150 million film that was like that is so wild. I mean, I'm glad that we have a director who's in a position of power to do that. Because I think he basically is the only person in Hollywood who could get that made I mean I can't think of anyone else who could who has that level of power which I guess if we can talk about the end just for a couple minutes before we stop so if you don't want to be spoiled stop listening um the very very end of the movie where um Theo Whitehead is reading the Churchill speech and then like a couple things happen sort of rapidly in succession. So Tom Hardy actually manages to land his plane, which has run out of gas, instead of crashing it, which is obviously what I expected to happen, and I think probably most people did. But then he immediately gets so you get this like he lands his plane, it's great, but then the Germans immediately come get him and that's the only time you see them in the film, I think. And then he's film Whitehead is reading this speech about how like we will never surrender or whatever. It's very famous. But the last shot of the film, I mean, meanwhile, Harry Styles is like celebrating with the civilians outside the train as they're pulling into the station, which was entertaining to me. But the last shot is of Fiona Whitehead's sort of like almost expressionless face and it fades out. And I just thought it was so interesting to end it that way because it isn't this celebration of anything.
0: Yeah, because I, I mean, I feel like, like you said earlier, um, like obviously there's going to be people who are going to have a very wide range mm-hmm. of reactions to that. And I think because that speech is so famous and overpowering, a lot of people are just going to be engaging with that in a kind of really intensely emotional way and being like, this is the victorious ending, which is fine. But I was, I'm much more of a kind of misery person. So, <laughs> so I think you <laughs> and I probably too. had a similar reaction being like, first of all, Fiona Whitehead's kind of ending where it's like, I didn't even really notice his expression actually in that scene, but what I was thinking about is the fact that obviously he and all the other soldiers are just going to be sent out for another five years because yep. it's it's 1940, yep. um, and Tom Hardy's character is almost certainly dead because he will be a prisoner of war and will probably be sent on a forced march to a work camp in somewhere in Germany.
1: Yeah, but I I loved the
0: ending for Tom Hardy's character because he is the person who's having, he's the person who's having an adventure story in that movie even though he's like yeah. the person who has the least developed character because he doesn't have any emotional reactions to anything but he's having this adventure story and it's not going to end well for him but it still works within the confines of like heroic fighter pilot
1: tropes yeah i agree and i was really nervous actually as it got to the end of the film that he was going to survive because i just felt like it's at too a certain hackneyed point, Right, like some and someone has to die because most of the central characters in the movie survive, which is actually realistic because they got like
0: three hundred thirty thousand right. people off the beach, which is nuts.
1: Yeah, and I think the decision to let Fionn Whitehead survive was really smart because I think it would have just been too nihilistic to kill him off. But somebody has to die, and like, oh, so many of those pilots died, like in the course of the war in general. Like they were the the RAF was the the highest casualty rate by far in the British army and possibly in any of the allied forces. I mean they just died. It was it was horrible. And this was such um, an
0: amazing and unique depiction of that because I mean I feel like I must have seen a lot of movies or TV shows that had RAF pilots in them. I mean I can't remember any specifically, but it just feels like such a familiar yeah, story type. Um, but in this, like, you really get such a good idea of how low-tech it is because they're literally sitting there with a clipboard and he's writing down his fuel in chalk on the dashboard. And you're just like, this this plane was invented like 30 years ago. <laughs> it's right. like you're flying in a bucket.
1: <laughs> oh my god, I know. And when he's shooting at the... Uh, like, I don't think I'd ever fully grasped how low-tech it was. Until seeing them. Yeah,
0: you're literally just shooting a normal gun at, like, a plane that's also shouldn't be flying.
1: (laughs) And just, like, hoping that it hits it, maybe. I mean, Jesus Christ. But anyway, he, he does land his plane and then doesn't die. And I was kind of like, okay. But then the fact that the Germans come get him, you're just like, oh my god, this is so terrible. Which, of course, is great because there needs to be something terrible happening at the end of the film. To make you not just feel like, oh, great, everyone survived. Because, of course, then they were all turned around and deployed again. Yeah. It's a nice story, except when you actually, I mean, which it is, but when you actually think about the long term or like the larger context around it, you know, a lot of people died in World War II. And I think the ending dealt with that really well without hammering the nail on the head too much even though obviously that Churchill speech is it's a Churchill speech so it's it's landed on a little thick but yeah I just thought I thought it was so smart and I'm really looking forward to seeing it again to try to sort of pick up more of the subtle stuff of what's going on
0: yeah I feel like the characters who are currently my favourite characters, which I realise is a childish way to react to this, but like, fuck it, I always have (laughs) favourite characters. The characters who are my favourite characters now are the ones that I feel like I had just a really easy gauge in and I think the second time around it will probably change because right now, obviously anyone played by Mark Rylance is my favourite character by default and I am (laughs) very frustrated that he is... He's now broken into Hollywood. I say broken in, but like, obviously he's a star. But like, he's now making Hollywood movies and he's exclusively making films which I'm never going to fucking watch. Like, his next film is Ready Player One. The only reason I'm watching that is if I get paid, which is a strong possibility, but I'm definitely going to hate it. So like, I feel like I'm really getting cocklogged from seeing a really sensitive Mark Rylance performance. But yeah, he's brilliant in this and just just seems like a wonderful, wonderful man. I love him. I love him. Every love performance him so he does. Much. I think like right after I saw it, like my entire review of this movie was just a single tweet where I said something like, I think Mark Rylance's soul is so big for his body that I can like touch it through the screen. <laughs> Which is, yeah. That is true. I am it's I am true. a 50 year old British stage actor stan, it turns out. But yeah, he's my favorite. And then the other favorite I have is Tom Hardy, who for some reason I just really engaged with because I found it really interesting that he was so kind of organized basically because it's simultaneously like fit into these sort of heroic roles while also being sort of atypical in a way that makes sense within the context of obviously if they're going to let you fly a plane then you have to be just someone who's ridiculously cool-headed
1: yeah and i think he gives a fantastic performance and you can only see his eyes through goggles well he's got, the got a only fucking part of fucking practice at doing goggle see. acting my girl it's true it's very true yeah, he was really, really good, and I enjoyed it a lot because I like him so much as an actor. And yeah, unfortunately, he, he just such... does
0: almost nothing but shitty
1: crime he dramas, makes the just worst like gangster films. movies. Just God, Tom! Oh my God! Ugh. Get just get your shit together, please. So this was a real relief. It was it was a <laughs> bomb to me. Yeah, obviously Christopher my Nolan favorite was... Saving
0: Men from bad roles, and then. Which is probably not hiring any women, but okay.
1: (laughs) You know, take what you can get. Um, Fionn Whitehead was obviously my favorite because he was the saddest boy. So, you know, that's all I want. Yeah, I think we've been talking about this for too long because I just looked at how long this has been going and it's a very long podcast. But that's because there's so much to discuss.
0: I mean, uh, we're basically at know. an hour, which I think is acceptable. And hopefully everyone's listened to the end because we actually have more podcasts to recommend to you because this is a rare episode where we have multiple different spin-off kind of lines you can go for. Yeah. Um. So Inception podcast is in there. We did relatively recently. I think we will have a different take on Inception than many of your other possible film <laughs> podcasts you might listen to because- That is
1: certainly true. While Morgan
0: and I are definitely film people, we actually met in the live journal fandom for writing romantic fanfic about the characters of Inception, which I think is probably not the typical way to view that film, or that that no. is my personal experience. I have met many lifelong friends through that very specific community of young women. Um, the other podcasts I would suggest are recently Wonder Women, where we talked a lot about World War One history because we are both very into our military history, um, and also Casablanca, which you all know Casablanca. We have a lot of thoughts about that and its politics and kind of World War II parallels to the current refugee crisis and that sort of thing. So that would be my recommendations from our back catalogue and obviously also Atonement.
1: Yes. So we will put links to all of those in Browse at Your Leisure. Next week, we will be doing a topic as yet to be decided because I am flying back to the united states and we don't know what is going to be happening over the weekend but we will provide you with some variety of entertainment at some point next week and then hopefully be back to our monday schedule thereafter
0: morgan will have stopped traveling the planet
1: yes my grand tour will sadly be over (laughs) but for the meantime thank you as always for listening If you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.